And then if you whack in four bags of FFP, that FFP, in my mind, isn't going to fix anything that's likely to be occurring. It's not going to fix fibrinolysis or fibrinogen deficiency. And the, that big load of citrate is probably not going to be helpful there. Um, Welcome to episode 50 of the Ups and Gyne Quick Care Podcast. Okay, hi everyone, welcome back. Um, I've got Graham with me on the podcast. He's busy giggling because I've just dropped the microphone on the ground. We had to start again. Um, this week uh, I've cornered him, so um, Graham and I have done a few um, major hemorrhage workshops together, and uh, so this inspired me to think that maybe we should sit down and do a little bit of a. Um, uh, have a bit of a conversation about uh, blood products and strategies and philosoph- philosophical approaches to managing those during major hemorrhage. What are you, any comments, Greg? Oh, I think uh, learning learning by preparing to teach is a really useful way of uh, simplifying things. Yeah, no, mm. I found it very useful. Mm. So, um, yeah, so basically what I thought we might do uh, is just have a discussion about the sort of two major philosophical approaches to managing major hemorrhage, uh, the pros and cons, and, and, and sort of tease out some of the um, history behind them. And and, um, and then once we've done that, maybe we can talk about uh, all the different blood products that um, those of us who are in theatre or emergency departments or on the labour ward, et cetera, uh, sort of need to know. So we're probably not going to go into the depth that... Um, uh, people who are like a hematologist or a lab- laboratory scientist are going to know this stuff, but just the stuff you need to know if you're going to use this stuff in, on the battlefield, mm. so to speak. Um, oh, which two f- philosophies were you referring to? <laughs> okay, so, so the, the uh, do you want to do you want to have a guess as the two philosophies I'm going to oh, bring up? Okay, so maybe the empiric approach. Yep. And the um, uh, point of care test guided approach. Yep. And then, right at the end of our discussion, I'll talk about uh, maybe a new sort of um, compromise where you can meet in the middle. Because not everyone has uh, things like TIG and Rotem, do they? So, they don't. Okay. So what I thought I'd touch on first is so the traditional empiric approach or the uh, sort of massive transfusion pack approach, I mm-hmm. guess those are the sort of two ways people term it, sort of come from um, the history behind those is, is an approach that sort of developed, I think, in uh, the military and some trauma centres, uh, maybe back in the early noughties. Um, the idea being that if you give, if you just try and reconstitute whole blood by giving red cells, plasma, and some of the other stuff that comes along with that, so depending on where you were, that would sometimes also include things like platelets and um, a bit of cryo. But traditionally, most of the uh, most of these massive transfusion packages or protocols rely heavily on lots of plasma and red cells. Uh, and then basically you just give them a sort of an empiric ratios uh, and the idea behind that is that that should hopefully keep the coagulation normal does that, does that sound about right yeah so trying to <clears throat> reconstitute whole blood yep by using uh equivalent volumes of the constituent products that are um preserved yep for administration and uh so first comment is that probably that was definitely an improvement on the uh, previous one, which was basically just hit and miss depending on who was looking after you as to what they would do. Um, and they certainly, um, at least they're giving, at least in, in, that, in this sort of um, strategy, you are giving something that helps the blood clot. Because obviously, as we all know, 
as you bleed, you eventually um, are going to come coagulopathic. If you don't do something about that, um, things will get bad. Um, but one of the main problems, I guess, <clears throat> is the the problem is that traditionally these have been plasma heavy, and um, so we'll go into that in more detail later uh, when we're discussing the separate blood products, and the, and we're going to talk about plasma uh, specifically. So I won't go into detail, but but that's probably the main problem with it. I think the other issue is that there's preservatives in each of those different products, whether it be pack cells, red cells, plasma, or platelets, so that in effect you aren't reconstituting blood. That's right. So there is degradation and loss of um, uh, of, of stuff during storage and uh, separation and things like that. So you actually aren't giving, you aren't actually reconstituting the patient back to what uh, is a normal individual's hemostatic uh, competence. Yeah. The other approach is targeted um, blood product administration, and that's um, usually using viscoelastic tests like Rotem or TEG, and there are some other newer ones around which I have no, no knowledge of. Um, and the main one we are familiar with, Graham and I, is uh, Rotem. Um, and so the idea behind that is that you've got some uh, functional test which can assess what's actually going on in uh, the hemostatic system, and it can give you an answer quickly and um, and, the, and the, the mental model, the cognitive model that I like to sort of talk about when we're teaching about this is that it's basically assessing four sort of domains of hemostasis, which I thought I would go through if it's all right with you. Yep, sounds good. Um, you can actually, there are some people who have used co traditional coags for targeted blood um, product administration as well, but that doesn't assess all of the aspects that a viscoelastic test can assess. <clears throat> So the first thing that viscoelastic tests can assess is fibrinolysis. Um, so what is fibrinolysis? I guess we should sort of define that for people. Uh, yeah, so, so fibrinolysis is a physiological process whereby clot in the body is broken down. Yeah, that's and right. And the uh, pathways involved include plasmin, and uh, plasmin is activated as a clot's formed, but also in some other circumstances such as in tissue ischemia yeah so so i'm going to just uh I will, I will elaborate on that a little bit but so the four things that we assess when we're using um targeted management is fibrinolysis fibrin fibrinogen deficiency platelets and whether we can generate thrombin yep. um so getting back to fibrinolysis um so this you know you, you can't um, assess that using traditional coagulation tests because they don't uh have any way of, of sensing it or or, or um describing it to you um, so this is actually quite common in patients who are bleeding isn't it and it was uh, and it's only when we started in our uh, health in the place where we work started using um, Rotem that we realized that this occurs more often than we realized um, and basically you know fibrinolysis can occur just at a sort of in a specific location in the body or you can get this uh, phenomenon known as um, systemic hyper hyperfibrinolysis where there is fibrinolysis throughout the body, and um, obviously this, uh, in a hemorrhaging patient, is a counterproductive uh, or not advantageous to the organism who's you know for someone who's bleeding. Yeah, I mean it contributes to coagulopathy. That's right. Yeah, so it stops basically from forming a blood clot. And if you're in the middle of a major hemorrhage, you need to form a blood clot in order to um, survive. So it's a counterproductive thing that needs to be turned off. Hmm. And the treatment is usually. Um, tranexamic acid or some sort of antifibrinolytic. 
So what's the sort of thing that triggers it? One of the things I like to say uh, is to describe is that it's being described in any form of shock, actually. So people having any form of shock where they're not perfusing their tissues well, the tissues probably um, at the tissue level are saying, hey, we need more perfusion, and they release lots of substances, including things like plasminogen, mm. to try and encourage blood flow. Um, that's how I like to frame it in my mind. I don't know if, if that's um, <clears throat> people... Uh, may disagree with that but it's, it's been described in anaphylaxis cardiac arrest any form of shock basically so i think um nowadays most people give tranexamic acid very early in most forms of hemorrhage including obstetric hemorrhage because of data from things like the crash 2 trial and the woman trial and various other things and it's used a lot in elective surgery too isn't it which um obviously patients don't have shock states there but um, it seems to work at the site of the surgery that's occurring and so it's become a very ubiquitous, that's a nice word, isn't it? Mm. A ubiquitous um, tool, and it's used for most patients. So we don't see it as often now, uh, because a lot of the time, actually, by the time we do a rotum, or, um, they've already been given tranexamic acid. Mm. Yeah, so uh, it's also been studied in cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, and and um, been demonstrated to be reasonably safe. That's right. And there's, so, so the signal is in all of these studies that it doesn't seem to be any increased incidence of thrombosis or uh, major adverse events. Mm. Um, so the next thing we're going to talk about is fibrinogen deficiency. And so the reason we're mentioning these, uh, these four things in, in this order is because the first two are the most common things that you, that you find. So certainly in our personal experience, but in talking to other people and seeing, reading the literature, you know, we've been basically doing a rotum on anyone who bleeds for the last seven years. And the things that you see are fibrin lysis, not so much now because they have tranexamic acid before we do it, and fibrinogen deficiency or nothing. Mm. So by far and away, the huge majority of patients, if you fix those two things, you, those are the things that are going to make them better. Anyway, so uh, fibrinogen deficiency, yeah. So this basically, fibrinogen is a building block, isn't it? And if you don't have enough of the building blocks, you can't make a clot. Um, and it seems to get used up more, than, uh, much quicker than any of the other uh, as, uh, components of the hemostatic pathway, and so this is the most common abnormality to occur. Um, next, the next one we assess is platelets. There seems to be a bit more redundancy in that system, so unless you start out with um, low platelets or thrombocytopenia, it takes a longer time to develop a problem from that. Um, but that is a problem that occurs in some patients and certainly will eventually occur in anyone who bleeds enough. Yeah. Uh, and I think it is a volume thing. Yeah. That is, uh, once you start to lose a significant portion of blood volume and have uh, the volume replaced, potentially diluting things, that the platelet numbers then Yeah, and you're using decrease. them up. So every time and you're the consuming body's, them. Yep. the body's trying to make clot, it consumes them. And... So their role, they have two roles, don't they? One is um, obviously um, adhesion and aggregation and releasing um, factors that sort of um, trigger the cascade, but they're also, like fibrinogen, they're actually one of the building blocks of a blood clot, so you need them to form a strong blood clot. Um, and that is the aspect of platelet function that, are, that a viscoelastic test like Rotem or Teague assesses. Mm. Uh, and then the final thing is thrombin generation, isn't it? So remember back to med school... Um, Graham, or were yes. you drunk for most of it? No, 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 I remember. Right. <laughs> oh, you have um, got some memory? Okay. An in intrinsic and extrinsic <laughs> pathway. 
That's right. All those of, big of um, cascades. Do you reckon you could, um, if I gave you a blank piece of paper, you could knock one of those out? I reckon I could have a go. Could, <laughs> could you? Are you a better man than me? <laughs> <laughs> I can remember the last bit of it. I certainly wouldn't have uh, after I finished med school, but I probably um, probably could now. But uh, we'll have a go anyway. But I remember the, trying to work out how I could uh, use that uh, pathway <laughs> to better care for patients and never being able to work out how. <laughs> So if you remember, right at the bottom, the final sort of common uh, pathway, I think it's called, is a generation of thrombin, which is basically a key molecule in the coagulation cascade. Um, so that's factor two if, mm. um, if, you try, if you work with the numbers. And um, so thrombin generation, so the good thing about this, that system is that the generation of thrombin on the, on the intrinsic and intrinsic pathways, et cetera, all those factors, there's actually a lot of redundancy in there. And there's, um, you need... Um, because of the sort of positive feedback um, uh, uh, enzymes, you know that you need to lose quite a significant uh, l- number or level of um, factors in, the, in those pathways before you can't generate throm- enough thrombin uh, for adequate hemostasis. So, and I've got that's a one number, of the last things that actually goes goes wrong. And I've got a number like sixty percent of blood volume. Or, yeah, I think or twenty or thirty percent factor levels. Are th- um, I'm going to get criticised by mm. some uh, people who know more than me, but I think yeah. That, 20 or 30% is thought to be adequate. Mm. And so um, once you lose that volume and you replace with some other volume, you get to around those levels. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> 20 or 30%. And so the other important thing, so like the um, the level of platelets in fibrinogen also contributes. So it's a sort of a combination of enough thrombin, enough platelets and enough fibrinogen to, tr- to, to get the blood clot forming. Uh, so... So uh, when, certainly the clotting time, which is the time it takes for a clot to start forming, which is assessed by um, Rotem, is affected also by fibrinogen and platelets and uh, not just the level of um, coagulation factors and thrombin. But yes. anyway, that is a, so that can go wrong, but it usually goes wrong later on in the track, down the track, than these other things. Mm. Okay, I think we've talked enough about philosophy. Yes. Um, Shall we talk about the um, blood components now? So the different things that we use. We've talked about, we've probably already mentioned tranexamic acid. What's the usual dose? One gram. Yeah, one, one to two grams yep. is what I see people give. Um, someone asked us at the uh, workshop, um, what's the half-life and when should you give again? I've always got this, I don't know why, six to eight hours in my mind, but I think if someone's bleeding out and they lose a large um, amount of blood, then they've probably lost the tranexamic acid they've given so it makes sense at some stage to maybe give another gram hmm. um, and obviously if you're lucky enough to have a rotum or something you should be looking for um, fibrinolysis okay I wanted to I really wanted to talk about fibrinogen yes. in more detail because that's probably the key thing that I want everyone to learn uh, a bit more about so I'm going to ask you Graham just um, uh, what are the two ways of what are the three way or three blood products yeah, that so we that have fibrinogen in them, and then we'll talk about why only two of them are really useful. So, in increasing um, concentration, the product with the lowest concentration is fresh frozen plasma. Yep. The uh, next is cryoprecipitate, and yep. the um, most concentrated is fibrinogen concentrate. That's right. Okay. <clears throat> so now we're going to talk about um, what sort of level of plasma concentration of fibrinogen should we be aiming for. In a major hemorrhage, that seems to yeah. be the sort of it's generally accepted levels. I think if a patient's bleeding, a fibrinogen concentration of two is a reasonable yep. target. Yep, that's right. So so the numbers that most people sort of aim is two or sometimes three, so around two to three grams per litre in the traditional yeah. test. 
um, two being the main most common. And if you're used to um, interpreting rotums, the FibTMA5 of 10 to 12, maybe a little bit higher, mm. seems to be the sort of levels that most people quote in their algorithms and guidelines. Um, so I'm going to keep talking because Graham's walking off, but that's all right. Um, so the other thing is, um, so the reason why FFP is no good is because the average concentration that um, we've read about is, uh, or it was quoted is that FFP has an average concentration of sort of 1.6 to maybe just over 2 grams per litre. So if you're trying to get someone who's already got low fibrinogen back up above 2 to 3 grams per litre, you can't do it with a dilute uh, solution like FFP, unfortunately. Even sewer style. So Graham's back from his phone call. Um, so we, I just explained how um, FFP only has a, a concentration that is unfortunately too low to sort of um, increase uh, fibre engine back to a, to the level that you're aiming for. So um, uh, the concentration of cryo and fibre engine concentrate when they're reconstituted. Yeah, so cryo's got 8 grams of um, yeah, fibre well, per Yeah, 8 to 12 actually, uh, oh, really? so according to the Red Cross, but those are the two sort of, that's the range that we've, uh, that most... Um, people work on and fibre engine concentrate 20 grams per litre yeah that's right so obviously those two products very concentrated forms of fibre engine and if you administer enough of them you can um, supplement someone uh, such that you can push their fibre engine concentration back above the sort of target level um, so let's just delve into cryoprecipitate a little bit what's in cryoprecipitate uh, so cryoprecipitate has uh, fibre engine yep. it has factor 13 it has von Willebrand's factor factor 8 yep. and fibronectin that's right <clears throat> and so the main reason we give it uh, and, and hemorrhage is obviously fibrinogen um, and it's possible though that the other fa those other factors uh, are helpful as well in, in um, augmenting hemostasis so that's, that's a good that's one advantage of them is it's a bit more balanced than fibrinogen concentrate I think there's some in vivo evidence that yep. uh, the uh, information you get on a, um, a viscoelastic test is of superior quality when you administer cryo compared to administering fibrinogen concentrate. Yeah. Mm. So, um, so there's some. That, so that's one possible advantage. Um, now, there's two forms of cryoprecipitate that are available now. I know in Western mm. Australia, and I think it's similar throughout most of Australia and pro probably New Zealand uh, and other parts of the world. Single, so, the single donor yep. bags, and there is apheresis bags. Although apheresis bags come from a single donor as well. That's right. So they're prepared by um, plasmapheresis, uh, plasmapheresis, where the, um, or apheresis, where the, the donor is hooked up. Um, some of their blood is taken off and um, separated, and they, the red cells are given back, and the plasma fraction is then used for um, for the different products that are available, platelets and fibrinogen and things. Yes. And so, so it sometimes causes confusion. That does. So those of us who are on the battlefield or on the theatre mm. uh, or ED or wherever we are when we've got a hemorrhage. So what we've tried to do is standardise the nomenclature and asking, instead of asking for a bag, asking for a dose. That's so, right. So a dose so of... one adult dose. Yeah. yeah. So one adult dose of uh, cryoprecipitate will be five bags of apheresis cryoprecipitate yeah. or 10 units of single donor. Yeah, that's right. So... The apheresis bags are approximately twice as big as the single donor bags. Mm. And what we had, the traditional dose was eight units of single donor cryoprecipitate uh, here in WA a few years back. And then that increased to 10 to come into line with the rest of Australia. 
and then but sometimes you can get the 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 our blood bank gets supplied with a mixture or a different types of product just depends on what's available so i have actually even seen combination of both you know where we've mm. had a patient who asked for an, an adult dose and we've had six little bags and two big bags and things like that so yes. it's it actually is easier for everyone if you just talk about adult doses and let the blood bank supply whatever they have uh, as an adult dose mm-hmm. um okay so that's pretty straightforward well it's not but i think it is now um and an adult dose gives you about one and a half to two grams of yeah fibrinogen yep so dosing um traditional doses a one adult dose there's not that much uh fibrinogen is there that's one of the things we just we've re- re- sort of realized over the last few years hmm. is that when someone has really low fibrinogen uh, you need to give them a lot of fibrinogen so one one standard dose which uh we've just talked about is not enough hmm. And then if you only give one dose and then wait and then do another blood test and then check a thing, before you know an hour's gone past and you haven't really done much. Yeah, and they've bled more. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So that's an, that's an important um, point in fibrinogen dosing is that you actually need to, to calculate the amount you need based on how severe the deficiency is. And we have in some patients given um, even, well, often we give two now if it's really low, but sometimes I know people are given three. Mm. Adult doses now. So to put that into context for those of you listening, that's thirty of those small bags of cryo in someone who, have, say, for example, has a fibrinogen concentration close to zero. And that's a lot of um, small bags of thawed product. Yeah, it's about a litre of um, volume of cryo That's right. So that's about nine hundred mils. Yeah. Mm. And um, so, so what's so that sort of brings up the con. So if you're trying to give twenty or even thirty of these bags. Uh, or, or 10 or 15 of the apheresis bags, how long does it take for the laboratory to thaw it, for people to check it, for it to be, for, for it to make sure it's uh, compatible and then also to actually even, even administer it? It can take a long time, can't it? It can. So depending upon where you work, uh, anywhere between 15 minutes to half an hour to have that product in your hands yeah. but then in order to check it. and then give. To yeah. actually give that mm. much, it takes you at least half. 20, 30 minutes too. So in all reality, if you've got someone who's really fibrinogen deficient, they're often the sickest patients, aren't they? And they're the ones who you want to get back to normal really quickly because they're often the ones that are really compromised. Uh, so you're looking at like an hour probably, I reckon, if you use cryo. So that's where, where the beauty of um, fibrinogen concentrate comes in. Yes. And that's how it works. Well, certainly that's how we're using it in our tertiary sort of centre. Uh, we'll talk about it's the, the incredible utility of it in places that don't have blood banks. Um, mm. But um, so tell me about fibrinogen concentrate. So it's a freeze-dried uh, yep. preparation. It's got a reasonably long shelf life. Yep, it's five re- years, I think. Five years. It's reconstituted with water. Yep. And uh, we've found if we reconstitute with water close to body temperature, it's a quicker reconstitution than if we use cold water. Yep. In that situation, it takes about three minutes to reconstitute. Yep. It's important, though, that the product is... Um, Swirled. swirled, not yep. shaken. It, it, when it's shaken, it turns um, or creates a large volume of froth uh, before administration. It can be administered um, reasonably rapidly, either over three to ten minutes, depending upon the circumstance. Yeah, so I think talking to most people, like if you're giving uh, fibrinogen concentrate to someone with a congenital deficiency before a planned elective operation, mm. the, the, the product info says to give it over ten minutes. But obviously in someone who's hemorrhaging and is... Uh, in a critically unwell state, 
most people um, around the world give it over one to two minutes. Yeah. Um, so a 50 mil syringe, put it on a syringe pump, uh, set it to sort of go in over one or two minutes, and uh, while that's going on, you can draw up and get the next syringe ready and pretty much then just swap them over. So you can sort of give... Um, that's, per, five, that's per gram of yeah, uh, fibrinogen. That's right. Yeah. So, so a standard dose in someone with a really low fibrinogen is sort of somewhere between four to six grams or four to six ampules of fibrinogen concentrate. Mm. Uh, and someone who's got a really low fiber engine and then reassess um, and now obviously um, the beauty of this stuff is it doesn't have to be refrigerated doesn't need to be uh, cross matched it has a five year shelf life it can be mixed up and administered by uh, anywhere any by anyone so it can be used in um, hospitals that don't have blood banks it can be used in pre-hospital settings retrieval uh, retrieval all those sorts of yeah, it's things. very very light light file um, just be stored at room temperature mm. um, so it's a very useful um, product and I know that it is used in those settings in Australia already mm. great alright the next thing we should talk about uh, is platelets shouldn't we so that can so so that sort of less commonly occurs in most major hemorrhages but it can be a problem mm. uh, it certainly isn't it's, certainly do see it um, what's the problems with um, platelets well platelets are only available in our um, state uh, in major centres. That's right. So there's probably only two or three hospitals that have it on site, mm. and those are the big teaching hospitals that have... Uh, and the main reason is it has such a short shelf life that the um, blood service don't want to give it out to anyone where it's not going to get used. Exactly. Uh, so they don't uh, release it until until you know you need it. Yeah. Um, so most hospitals, even in, the, even in the metropolitan areas, don't have platelets on site. And certainly if you live in rural or regional areas, it's going to take you a long time to get some because it has to be flown to you. Yeah. So yeah. I have flown them out as part of my retrieval work in the past, and that involves uh, yeah. speaking to the blood bank, getting the police to drive as fast as they possibly can to the um, medical retrieval service and then getting yeah. there as soon That's as possible. Right. And so certainly in a very geographically um, challenged state like WA, if you live way up north where you did work, Kununurra, mm. you know, well, you'd be looking like 10 hours before you got it, would you, or oh, a bit less? You could probably get it down from Darwin in... Two hours. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's the main downside. So what about, uh, what could you do as a temporising measure uh, in the meantime if you didn't have platelets but and you had to wait for quite a long time before you could get some? So fibrinogen's thought to, um, you know, administered to kind of super therapeutic levels is thought yeah. to be a reasonable substitute. <clears throat> that's right. So fibrinogen can't take over all the platelet aggregation and all those sorts of functions that platelets have but certainly as the building block of a blood clot to make it a strong blood clot mm. if you have um, low platelets then that could you know lead to overall clot strength being a bit deficient but if you then go a bit higher on the fibrinogen concentration that is um, they're synergistic mm -hmm. and so that can help yeah so that's what I would do uh, if I was in a situation where I didn't have platelets really to hand as a um, just aim for a higher fibrinogen concentration um, I guess uh, you know whole whole blood has platelets. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's a difficult uh, product to um, use in our current uh, yeah. paradigm. So I know, like the military um, uh, bases and things like that, use that. You know, the, the, mm. the sort of the living donor. I know that has been used in the past in some rural um, centres in Australia. I don't think, as far as I'm aware, WA has anything like that at the moment. There might, might not be true. There might be some other jurisdictions in Australia mm. that do I don't know um, and finally so the last thing we're going to talk about is FFP so that is um, 
um, or uh, that is usually uh, in the in this sort of targeted approach is used when we're trying to increase thrombin generation. So the sort of thing you're looking at is a, a prolonged clotting time uh, on a rotomer tick. Um, so, th so the first point I want to make is so that will help with um, with that because it has all those clotting factors and the clotting cascades we talked about before, and that, and it has thrombin, uh, prothrombin as well, which is mm -hmm. what you need for th to make thrombin. Um, but the important point to make is the three most or the two then slash three most common abnormalities that occur in major hemorrhage are fibrinolysis, fibrinogen deficiency, and platelet def problems. And FFP doesn't have any of those, does it? So no. it doesn't really make sense to me why that should be the main thing if you're using an empiric approach to transfusion. Maybe we'll talk about what we th what we would do or what you and I would do in um, a situation where we didn't have um, any way of testing the blood. So, um, I, I would. I mean, I don't know, but I would replace the FFP with cryoprecipitate. Yeah, or, in, or yeah, or depending upon which product you have access to. Yeah, in an empiric management of major hemorrhage situation. Yeah, so I think um, if you don't have access to um, blood te uh, some sort of blood testing uh, quickly, and you wanted to empirically cover your bases, the best, the safest, and the most sensible thing to do, knowing what is most common, or most commonly goes wrong, is to give some tranexamic acid, some fibrinogen, and some red cells, and uh, that uh, until you can um, do uh, some sort of testing. Yes, and that makes much more sense to me. And that is what we do do. Yep. So sometimes we have people who are just bleeding so rapidly we don't wait for any sort of blood test. I mean, um, FFP also has some anticoagulant properties. That's uh, an issue as well. Yeah. Well, uh, some of the it is uh, it does have most of the citrate. So mm. when a donor um, donates blood, most of the that uh, they use citrate to obviously stop it from clotting, and most of the citrate ends up in the FFP. Mm. And citrate's not good for you, is it? No. So it binds calcium, gives you hypocalcemia. Um, so that can cause problems with vasoplegia and um, myocardial contractility issues, um, which people will say, well, that's okay because the liver metabolizes it pretty quickly. But when you're in shock yeah, and your blood pressure is 60, the liver's not metabolizing much of it. And actually, that's not true. So, um, And then if you whack in four bags of FFP, that FFP, in my mind, isn't going to fix anything that's likely to be occurring. It's not going to fix fibrinolysis or fibrinogen deficiency. And the, that big load of citrate is probably not going to be helpful there. Um, um, and there is lots of um, literature showing that FFP is strongly associated with the incidence of TARCO, which for those of you who don't know it is a, uh, an acronym for um, pulmonary edema, tetralian TARCO, which is basically transfusion-associated pulmonary edema. Or cardiac. Yeah cardiovascular overload isn't it yeah that's yeah. right and basically yeah. cause there's a large volume of because you're giving a large volume of dilute stuff yeah all right I mean, so i think i think we've talked about our empiric strategy what do you we think about uh, prothrombin complex concentrate yes, as that's an alternative right. to ffp in order to generate thrombin yep where that's lacking in a patient with major hemorrhage yep so that is um We've hardly ever had to do that, but that is something you, sh you could use. Obviously, it's ma the main role for that uh, product is it's licensed for um, rapid reversal of warfarin. Yes. And it has um, two, seven, a little, I think it has... Well, Very, it's not got much a little seven. bit of seven. Yeah, but it has two, seven. nine, and ten, and yeah. a little bit of seven. Yeah. Um, but the main thing I've been told is uh, if you're using it for um, dilutional coagulopathy, not warfarin, 
the the prothrombin, so the two, factor mm. two, that's a key one, and um, it is useful for that. So most people, uh, most um, transfusion uh, protocols that listed as an alternative FFP say the situation might be where you don't have access to FFP, places that don't have blood banks, um, or it's going to take a long time to get because you know you obviously got to thaw it and prepare it, and, and uh, that can take a while. Or for example, say um, a patient has already got volume overload mm -hmm. and you don't want to give them more volume um, or they don't want to give them a big dose of citrate or they're just so coagulopathic, you know, um, extremely coagulopathic that you want something that's a bit more concentrated and quicker acting. Yeah. Those are the sort of situations I think you should consider it. But having said that, have you ever used it? I've only used it in no reversal of, of warfarin. Yeah, same. I've mm. only used it, but only really for reversal of warfarin. Mm. Um, any parting comments? And I think it's a very interesting discussion. I'd like, uh, really, if there's anyone in the audience who has an, uh, any comments to make or feedback, if they could. Um, I don't know if anyone else has a has a you know mind map like this in terms of managing major hemorrhage or criticisms of what we said. Yeah, it's good to hear some feedback. And mm. I know um, you know these are um, it's basically just philosophies, not really. So that study, studying these things is difficult to do, and the only studies I know of have, have compared sort of different ratios of FFP. And then uh, I should go and have a look. I think there was a study in Austria looking at um, the plasma-based approach versus the sort of viscoelastic-based approach. Uh, I think the viscoelastic one was found to be better, um, but I can't actually quote it or even tell you um, the details of that study. I know that this approach has made uh, my work and the work of my colleagues much uh, more straightforward. Yeah. And our um, our critical bleeding situations haven't um, progressed into uh, massive hemorrhage situations. Yeah. So so yeah, there is a lot. Of, I think there is a lot of people who have published before and after sort of stuff. Like this is this is um, the what happened before we introduced rotum and fibrin concentrate, and this is what happened after. The best, the, the one that I'm most familiar with is the Liverpool Women's Study, uh, where they basically showed that um, they used less blood products and they had less um, ICU admissions in pulmonary edema after they changed from the old approach, which was the massive transfusion packs, hmm. to using Rotem and Fibrin and Concentrate. And anecdotally, I can tell you that's definitely what happened here in uh, the hospital that we work in as well. Um, I can't remember the last time I had someone who had transfusion-associated pulmonary edema of some sort. Whereas I can remember when I first came here as a trainee and a junior consultant, it wasn't that uncommon. Mm. Um, and I remember intubating people with pink froth coming out of their tube after lots of bags of FFP a few times. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, definitely interested to hear what and anyone else, any of uh, their comments that they have. Mm. Thanks, Graham. Excellent. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgoingcritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.